And if you're here with us for the first Sunday, we've been journeying through the book of Titus. And today is going to be our uh, closing sermon on a series titled The Grace of God series with our fifth and final sermon on verses 11 through 15. And this theologically rich verse today is going to bless us again as this passage continues to encourage and equip us. Verse 11 featured the grace of God in salvation. Verse 12 displays the grace of God in our sanctification. Verses 13 and 14 encourage us with grace that points us toward our future glorification and our anticipation that the Lord Jesus Christ is returning. It also allows us to see how the glory of God is put on display through good works that he has prepared for the believer's life. And now we've arrived at verse 15. And it's here where we're going to see yet another dynamic of God's grace. Not only does God display his grace in salvation and sanctification, not only does God display his grace by instructing us to anticipate the future coming, uh, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, and to be prepared for it. Not only does he display his grace through good works and gifts that he's prepared in advance that we get to walk in, but verse 15 shares a form of grace that I believe is easy for many of us to take for granted. Let's read our passage one final time together before we unpack verse 15. Starting in verse 11, it reads, For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good works. Verse 15, these things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you. John MacArthur is fond of saying hard preaching creates soft hearts. And soft preaching creates hard hearts. And this is a powerful truth considering the climate of the church today where so much soft preaching exists. The hearts of God's people in most churches have grown hard. And many are left in the state of unbelief as they sit there week after week listening to preaching that is soft, that is devoid of the gospel, that doesn't provide sound doctrine for the people to listen to. Few are saved, and if by chance they are saved, they're not growing in sanctification to live lives that would give God glory. They continue to grow comfortable living with many of their sins and unbelief because the person called to preach the word of God in such a way that it would burn those sins out of their life isn't fulfilling their task. Thomas Watson said, Some preachers sow pillows of vermilion and silk under their people's heads so that they do not awake until they are in hell. Wow. Frightening statement. And so in light of this, Titus 2.15 
is one of the verses that would serve every shepherd and preacher in the church today to consider wisely, thoroughly, and to obey completely. It's a powerful verse that reveals yet another dynamic of God's grace, which happens to be the title of the sermon in your notes. The grace of God in providing shepherds. In a recent conversation that I was having with some of the men from the church who serve so faithfully in ministry, I was sharing with them that throughout history, whether that's been in patriarchal history, whether that's been in God's dealings with the nation of Israel, or whether it's been over the last two millennium in the church age, throughout history, God has always been faithful to provide for his people shepherds and leaders. He's done that. And on occasion, there were seasons of silence, but even in those silent times, the voices of prophets echoed, pointing God's people to instructions previously given. And now, as we live in the church age, another measure of God's grace continues as he provides shepherds for his people. But what are shepherds called to do? How is the flock to respond to their shepherding care? Well, verse this morning has some important insights for both shepherds as well as the flock. The sermon propositions in your notes from verse 15 this morning, God gives shepherds in the church four commands on how to use the word of God so that you, the flock, will be accountable to God's instruction, encouragement, and warnings in your lives. Command number one, shepherds must instruct you. Command number two, shepherds must exhort you. Command number three, shepherds must reprove you. Command number four, shepherds must hold you accountable. It's important for us to keep in mind the context of this letter. And I've shared it before, this is a pastoral epistle. And so this is Pastor Paul writing to Pastor Titus, who's going to go out and instruct other pastors in the churches on the island of Crete. It is a timeless letter in the sense that it also instructs pastors and shepherds for the entire church age. Look at the beginning of verse 15. It starts by saying, these things. What are these things referring to? A person could try to limit these things to the near context in verses 11 and four, through 14, which we've covered over the last few Sundays. And it was a lot of ground since the call of God's grace and salvation and sanctification serve as a pinnacle to this letter. But more likely, these things refer to the entire epistle, as we'll see. Paul started this conversation in chapter 1, verse 5. And as one expert in the Greek language shared, each section is firmly tied to the next so that there is no natural break in thought, end quote. Of course, the Apostle Paul was superintended by the Holy Spirit as he penned this letter. And it's amazing to see the precision with which it's written. It's like clockwork. Tell Titus how to establish qualified shepherds. Check. Tell Titus how to address false teachers. Check. Tell Titus to describe what the testimonies are supposed to look like inside the church for every age group, male or female. Check. Tell Titus to go ahead and describe all the dynamics of God's grace that he's provided for the church in verses 11 through 14. Check. Then we come to verse 15. 
Now Paul tells Titus specifically how to accomplish these things by giving him four commands. There are four commands on how to use the word of God so that you, the, the flock, will be accountable to God's instruction, God's encouragement, and God's warning in your lives. And then, though the weight of this verse is, is targeted towards pastors and leaders, the principles apply to all of us as members of the body of Christ. We are responsible for discipling in and out, right? Inside the church, outside the church. We need to shepherd one another. And so whether you're a pastor, an elder, a care group leader, a ministry leader, a parent, whatever, it doesn't matter, or or you're just a, a servant in the Lord Jesus Christ, and there is no title. We're all called to shepherd and admonish one another, so these principles apply to all of us. So we want to know how to do this, and we also want to know how to receive the shepherding care from the members of the body of Christ. It's good for God's people to see them firsthand. And it's equally important that the flock also understand how the Lord would have you respond, and we're going to develop this as we progress. But let's get started. Command number one, shepherds must instruct you. First command in verse 15, after these things, is the command to speak. And this is the same imperative that the Apostle Paul started out with Titus in uh, chapter 2, verse 1, when he said, speak the things that are fitting for sound doctrine. It's an active command, as all these commands are. And so we could actually translate them, make it your habit to instruct, or continually instruct. The ESV uses the word teach. And this command really calls for shepherds to instruct. Verse 1 also helps further develop our understanding of these things by implying that God's word is the ultimate and primary source of sound doctrine. And so here Paul again is pointing to the teaching ministry of Titus. And throughout the pastoral epistles, Paul used words, uh, three words primarily that he used, um, and they're interchangeable as he encouraged Titus and Timothy to instruct their people. One is translated speak, one is teach, and the last one is prescribe. And though preaching of the word is one channel of instruction, it's important to note that shepherds are not limited to preaching only when it comes time to instruct. And I thought it would be good for us just to take a brief snapshot of Paul encouraging these men to be faithful to teach in charges found throughout the pastoral epistles. And so you can write down these references. There's no way you're going to be able to turn there that quickly, but I just want to share these so you can gain a sense of it. In 1 Timothy 4.11, Paul says, prescribe and teach these things. In 1 Timothy 5.7, again, he says, prescribe these things as well so that they may be above reproach. 1 Timothy 6.2, preach and teach these things. And in a well-known verse, 2 Timothy 2.2, the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And the same is true in our account in Titus. In Titus 2.1, and now in Titus 2.15, and again in the next chapter, the point here again is that God commands shepherds to instruct 
the flock and to be prepared to do so. Plumbers have to be prepared and learn how to effectively be plumbers. Car mechanics have to read the manual at some point, right? And figure out what they're doing as they work on engines. Surely shepherds would comb the scriptures to find out how God wants them to instruct his people. Sadly, that's not always the case. And you wouldn't go to a heart surgeon if they weren't well studied up on to have heart surgery if they didn't know what they were doing, right? And so it makes no sense for people to go listen to a preacher or a physician of souls to have spiritual heart surgery performed on them if he doesn't know how he is supposed to teach. And I think we would all agree that dealing with people's eternal souls is much more important than dealing with their temporal hearts. Thankfully, God doesn't merely command shepherds to teach, but he also tells them what and how to teach. And it's very helpful for all believers to understand what God says about their shepherd's job description. And think, I want to share some practical ramifications of knowing how and what God wants your preacher to preach. Or these are practical ramifications of knowing how and and what... um, your preacher is to preach. First, you know how to pray. You know how to pray for me. One of the things that I am most grateful for that every Sunday our prayer ministry gathers in that room right up those steps and they always go to the Lord on my behalf for the sake of the preaching and the effective delivery of God's word. I rejoice in that. They pray for your hearts that you would also be prepared to receive it. Second, when we know the job description, we also know how to encourage shepherds. And that's not just me, but that's all shepherds. That, that there, there is a weightiness to the task. And if God's used a shepherd in your life to bless or benefit or build you up in some measure, then you would maybe have the opportunity just to encourage them. And this isn't pointing to me. I'm talking about just to shepherds in general. I mean, over the course of our lives, right, we've heard countless preachers bring the word of God faithfully. Maybe that isn't the testimony of everyone, but there's a lot of people in the room that have been blessed by it. And certainly having a chance to thank them for how they were used as a teacher of the word so that you could grow in your understanding of Christ and how God desires for you to live for him is a great blessing. Third, knowing the shepherd's job description helps when finding a church. People will know what kind of heart surgeon to look for. As they find somebody that's going to follow God's plan for teaching and instruction, not man's. Fourth, you'll have another reason to praise God if you can find a shepherd who preaches and teaches in the way God commands him to. It's a measure of God's grace in providing instructing shepherds for the church. Now, I think you would all agree that these commands carry some weight for whatever man is up here on a Sunday, whether that's me, whether that's Huey, whether that's Pastor David Cummings. I think you all can see how the scripture targets us. And the elders want you to know that we don't take this task and responsibility lightly. Yet I do believe there are principles of application 
for everyone in the church, if you'll allow me to shift the focus to the students of God's word. To do this, I'm, you'll notice in the outline that uh, for the sub-points, I provided two words under every, every point, uh, accountability and application. First, accountability. How might God have you hold your shepherd accountable? I want to draw our attention actually to a pillar that's up here. It is this, preaching the word with precision. And there's two texts that are down on the bottom for those that can't see. The first one is 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5, which I'm going to allude to later in the message. But the bottom one is Acts 17, 11. And for those that were with us during that time, when we went through actually a series on the ministry pillars of the church, you'll recall us featuring Acts 17, 11, and it's a reference to the Bereans. And when I taught through the series on these pillars, I shared that our church needs to have a Berean-like heartbeat that is reflected in Acts 17. Actually, just turn there real quick. It'll be good to see this. Acts chapter 17, and we'll actually start in verse 10, provide just a little bit of the context. And here, the physician Luke, known for his details, records for us how teachable and focused on the word of God the Bereans were. Verse 10 of Acts 17. The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. Therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. And notice the descriptive language used by Luke in verse 11 to describe the Bereans. They received the word with great eagerness. It could also be translated accepted, listened. They welcomed it with great eagerness or readiness of mind. And they knew the word. And I love this last description that Luke shares. They were examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Which can also be translated searching or investigating the scriptures daily. They were in every sense committed to the word. And what was the fruit of their commitment? What did it produce? It provided a level of accountability, did it not? to the men who were coming and teaching, who were instructing them. They were weighing it out against what God has to say, not what that man had to say. Question for you. Are you willing to do the same? Have you underestimated your role that, that you play in keeping shepherds and teachers accountable for what they teach. It doesn't take a seminary education. It takes a willingness to look at the text of Scripture and to make sure that there are no contradictions. That's what it takes. You know, a couple Sundays ago, we taught on sanctification. 
And we talked about the reality that in salvation, it's monergistic, that, God, that there's one worker in salvation. And then I said, when it comes to our sanctification, that it's synergistic, that we work with God in our sanctification. How do you know that's true? Are you giving, you're giving me a pass? Am I getting the benefit of the doubt? Right? And, and, I, and, and I, I wanted to provide a practical example because, again, um, I need your accountability and, and you need shepherd's accountability. This is, this is mutual ministry that takes place within the church. And it's so important. Well, the second word is application. And this relates to just, uh, not just to hearing the, the word, not just hearing instruction from God's word, but owning it and applying it. And the Apostle James in chapter 1, verses 22 through 25, helps us understand the significance of this when he writes, starting in verse 22, but prove yourselves doers of the word, and not merely hearers who delude themselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his natural face in a mirror. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he has immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. Flashback to last week when we were talking about bathing in the word, right? A 20-word a, a devotional isn't going to get it done. It's not. That there needs to be a significant portion of time where we can look into that mirror, that we can meditate on what God's word. In fact, it continues in, in verse 25, but the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And God wants, praise him, God wants to bless us with his word. And the only way that can take place is if we're going to study it, if we're going to meditate on it, if we're going to apply it to our lives. It is the law of liberty. It is the place of freedom. It is going to take those things that are encrusted on us and caked on us in our spiritual lives that are detrimental to our spiritual walk in giving him glory. It's caked on us. And we have to soak in God's word. Soak in his instruction. And I'll share this, as I was thinking about this in my preparation, our educational system doesn't always do us any favors. You know, it's, it's, sometimes we can de develop even a mentality of it's just getting to the next grade. It's just getting through the class. It's just getting the diploma so that I can go get the job and get it, right? Anyone else sense that, right? It's just a get it, get it done. And it's a consumer mentality. And you might, you know, oh, he's a good teacher. Yeah, got the job done. I passed the course. And we can bring that mindset into the church. We can. We're vulnerable to that same mindset when God would have something better for us. And I'll share this. And there's four commands in this text. And I think that you'll gain a sense. And, and, and I, I want to be gracious, but I also want to be truthful as, as it relates to the word. I mean, I, I had to wrestle with this all week in my own heart. I had to take into the account of how many times that I've listened to a message that has been good instruction, that has been meant for my spiritual life, and I didn't look at my notes or the couple things that I happened to write down after walking out of the front door of the church. 
And we're all guilty. We're all guilty of that, right? But, but yet this is what God wants for us. He's got something better for us. And it's the very reason why he gives shepherds in the church these commands on how to use the word of God so that, that as the flock will be accountable to God's instruction, encouragement, and warnings in our lives. Well, command number one is shepherds must instruct you. Command number two, shepherds must exhort you. Please turn back to uh, Titus 2.15. And notice the second command given after the, uh, the second command after the command speak. Our verse now provides the command to exhort. And this command has a broad range of meaning. It can stem all the way from a gentle, comforting exhortation all the way to the the strongest exhortation that is summoning or entreating someone to listen. And it's a compound word meaning to call. In the Greek, it's kaleo, and beside para. So when you put it together, it's parakaleo. And this is the, the verb form of the noun where we get paraclete, which we know, or many in the room would know, is the noun used to translate what? Holy Spirit. Yeah, and so it serves us well to think about the ministry, the broad ministry of the Holy Spirit. Was, does the Holy Spirit um, help us and guide us in our walks? Of course. Great blessing. That God gives us an internal uh, blessing of the, the Holy Spirit guiding us. But yet at the same time, does the Holy Spirit also convict us of sin? Yeah, it even says this in John sixteen eight. It says that the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit convicts you of sin and righteousness. So that really provides, when we, we talk about parakaleo, that really provides us with the broad depth of this instructing term right it can go everywhere from bringing somebody a comfort of encouragement i'm sorry you've had such a difficult week but god says that we can you know that that our hope is in him that he will bless us and encourage us when we turn to him and turn to his word all the way to the strongest forms of of exhortation that could involve admonishing someone who is unruly. So, at times there's comfort and encouragement when God's word is used by the shepherd when it instructs us of righteousness, and then at times there are strong exhortation used in God's word by the shepherd when we need to be convicted of our sin. And I'd say a good balance of this is seen more, not, uh, it's used in preaching, but we see this take place in a lot of the counseling uh, sessions and ministries. People show up and they're hurting and they're despairing because um, circumstances and trials that have entered into the picture are difficult. And it can be an encouraging word to let them know that the Lord will lead them through whatever trial or uphill climb that they're facing spiritually. Because he will. Because he will. Well, at the same time, if there is sin that's not being dealt with, strong exhortations would be given to let that person know that you need to repent. 
You need to repent. You need to seek forgiveness. You need to be reconciled with that person. God provides shepherds in the church to be faithful to this command to use God's word so that you'll be accountable to God's comfort and encouragement as well as the strong exhortations to promote change in your life. And so let's consider our two uh, words underneath this point, our subpoints: accountability and application. Accountability here means that as a shepherd, as a counselor, as a preacher, that I and the other CBC elders would be using God's word effectively to encourage and comfort you as well as to exhort you. But again, I need to turn the table here. I need to ask you some, some questions. Is God's word the source of your comfort? When you are hurting or despairing, are you inclined to turn to him to find your comfort, to console you. When you're struggling with a besetting sin in your life, and it's just plagued your life, and it can have a crippling effect on your walk with the Lord, are you churning to the word to get your answers? To rely upon God's counsel to attack the sin and the temptation you're facing. And we have such a beautiful illustration, do we not? As we all strive to become more like the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was tempted in Matthew 4, who all three times, it's not just by chance that he responded to the enemy armed and equipped with the word. He gave a response from the scriptures. Doesn't mean that you can't call your mom. Doesn't mean that you can't call someone in your care group, a discipler, a mentor, to seek godly counsel. But I, I, I need this instruction for my own heart. And I was thinking about this. It was just like, gosh, I can, it's so easy just to pick up and talk to somebody and say, what, what would you do? How would you handle this? And it's like, what, what does God have for me? Let, let, let me get some illumination in this dark situation. Again, we need to make it our habit to run to the fountain of life and the counsel of God's word. Well, application is our second word. And it's not just a matter of receiving comforts or strong exhortations from God's word. But again, it's applying them. And it's so easy for us to allow our feelings and our circumstances to govern our lives when the Lord wants his truth to govern our lives and give us direction when we are hurting and despairing. And if you are in a dark place, if you are in a dark season of life, his word, I'm telling you, listen, church, his word will be a lamp to your feet and it will be a light to your path and it will lead you to a place of hope and it will allow you to see with clarity. He does it. He provides it. And the same can be said for strong exhortations when we're facing a serious battle against sin. But stronger exhortations need to be embraced and applied. We have to take them to heart. And so are we being intentional in applying the exhortations that a sovereign, omnipotent, omnipresent God provides in our battle against sin? 
we'll use just even our immediate context. When he gives us uh, five comprehensive actions to take as it relates to making progress in our salvation, to deny ungodliness and wicked desires, that ex- exhortation, are, are, we, are we applying that practically so that our lives bring glory to the work of Christ in our lives? And again, if we heard it but did nothing with it, there is no blessing that can come from it. And God gives shepherds in the church four commands and how to use the word so that you will be accountable to God's instruction, encouragement, and warnings in your life. Command number one, shepherds must instruct you. Command number two, shepherds must exhort you. Command number three, shepherds must reprove you. Look back at the middle of verse 15. It says, these things speak and exhort, and now it says, reprove with all authority. And notice the progression in the commands, right? The pace is picked up. It's instruct, and then it can be a strong admonition, and now we're getting a a, a full-out charge to rebuke someone. This word can also be translated convict, refute, or expose. And it's important for us to keep in mind that Paul was helping Titus deal with the false teachers that were on the island of Crete. And so they were teaching things that were having a negative impact on the testimony of the church. And Paul already used this same Greek word in Titus 1.13 when he wrote, Reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. And so if they're not responsive to Titus' instruction, if they're not responsive to being exhorted, then it leaves no other option than to reprove them in a sharp manner. One pastor wrote, quote, It means to sharply and forcefully whack someone with a verbal two-by-four to refute them so that they feel guilt, conviction, shame, and are moved to repent. End quote. Now, of course that two-by-four is used in the figurative sense. Okay, It really is. But the point is that it should carry the weight of God's word. And this is reflected in the description that comes right after our command. If you look in verse 15, it says, it says, reprove with all authority. The phrase all authority in the Greek is literally all commanding. And so each of these first three commands is forceful by, by themselves. But if you tack on with all commanding, they really get forceful. And as we've considered the meaning of these commands, their most forceful definition is mandated by the modifier with all authority. And we get this. Really, in the end, no, no shepherd has authority on their own. What am I going to do? Come to you and say, you have to listen to me. You want to know why, Albert? Because I'm the pastor. Yeah, that's what I'm going to say. I'm going to pull, pull that. Really? that what you got? It's not, it's not, I I don't, in and of myself, what do I got? But I come to a brother and I say, and I say, you know what? God's word instructs, instructs you to do this. And this is how you're supposed to be loving and caring for Judy. And this is how you're to take care of her. I'm just using that example. I, but, 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 but that's where the weight is, right? That's where the emphasis comes. That's where, that's where the, 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 the oomph comes from. And Paul armed Timothy with the same command to reprove 
in 2 Timothy 4.2, right after he commanded them to faithfully preach the word in the opening verse of 2 Timothy chapter 4. And personally, I like the word reproof. I've never been a big fan of the word rebuke. Sharon, I, I like the word reprove because even that word prove in there reminds me that I need to be using the instruction of God's word. That when I'm gonna when, when I'm gonna make a point or if I'm gonna offer somebody something that's gonna challenge them, I, I want to prove it from his word. I want to show them the scriptures to say this is this is how you're to respond, or this is what we need, this is how we need to live. And this is true whether reproving false teachers or even fellow believers who may not even be aware that their teaching is false or that it doesn't align with the scripture. I mean, they might be trying to prove their teaching with genuine convictions, right? And we want to reprove them with the authority of God's word. And I especially appreciate what the Apostle Paul was led by the Holy Spirit to include in 2 Timothy 4.2 after it says it provides the command to reprove. It says, with all gentleness and instruction. So, in Titus 2.15, we have reprove with all authority. And then, in 2 Timothy 4.2, we have with all gentleness and instruction. Which is it? Right? Trick question. You're on it. It's both. It's both. That we're, and, and that's why we're bringing the authority of God's word, but we're doing it in a spirit of gentleness. And just like Paul encouraged Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 23 and 24 in that passage, not to, not to be quarrelsome, but to be patient. And the hope is that it will lead them to repentance. We have a stewardship a weight and responsibility to reprove someone who has gone astray as a shepherd. We have all authority with the weight of the scriptures and authority from God himself to reprove someone who has gone astray. And so, as one brother shared, you can't do this in a willy-nilly fashion. There cannot be a spirit of timidity. Sometimes it takes being courageous and, and bold, and a, a willingness to go to them. As shepherds, we bring the conviction and entire weight of the authority of the word to bear on a wayward brother or sister, yet we do so with gentleness and tender loving care because we're trying to save them from the heartache of this world. And we can do this because of the gospel. Why? Because we're all sinners. All sinners saved by grace. And God's word hits us over the head like a hammer, yet there is profound agape love, grace, and gentleness found in the gospel. Well, let's consider our two subpoints: accountability for this third command. How well do you receive reproving and correction? How approachable do you think other believers find you if they felt the need to come talk to you about ongoing sin that they see in your life? How would it impact you if someone in your care group shared with you that it appears that you grumble 
or that you complain a lot. Or that somebody approached you and they said, you know, I noticed that it seems like you can be pretty critical of your parents or of your spouse or someone in your family. Again, these are hypothetical questions, but it's good to reflect on how receptive that we would be in our heart to receive such a reproof from someone. Application would entail how you have applied receiving a rebuke or reproof in the past. Are you discerning or are you dismissive? Somebody comes and they share something that's hard to hear and the inner defense mechanism within us rises up, right? Oftentimes grounded and rooted in pride. <laughs> You're like, what? Are you serious? Right? That, that, you know, little devil, the old person, it rises up within. The inner lawyer is quick to defend us from reproof and quick to poke holes and criticize and dismiss the attempts to rebuke us. And we need to keep our system of defensiveness held in check and see a reproof. Listen, we need to see it as a means of God's grace. And it's, it's a messenger from him to help us. And how about the reality that, I mean, think about it, that they would even care so much about us. No one wants to share hard things. No one takes joy in that. No shepherd, no pastor in the church takes joy in that. Nobody in the church does. But what an expression of love. Have you ever considered that the person you think is being harsh or critical or judgmental is actually a messenger from the Lord sent to you as a means of grace and mercy? We need to invite and seek reproof in our lives. We need transparency. We need to cultivate this in our care groups. We need to have a willingness, um, at whether a, a shepherd in, in the church, whether a pastor or an elder, it, it doesn't matter. Every one of us in the church needs to have that level of apparency so that we're able to, in humility, open up the door for someone to correct us or to rebuke us or to reprove us. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Deceitful are the kisses of the enemy. You want a biblically defined way to determine the people in your life that really love you the most? They'll tell you the things that you need to hear. They will tell you the things that are hard. And I want to talk to my, 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 our, our teenagers in here because you may think that God provided the parents that you have to um, somehow make your life more difficult and more challenging than it has to be. They love you. They care for you. And they don't want to see you uh, make a tragic mistake. A difficult, difficult life lesson. The people who love you will tell you the things that you need to hear. And this is especially true for those of us who have unsaved family and friends. If we love them, we are going to stay committed to keep sharing the gospel with them, right? 
We're going we're gonna to seek them. We're going to pursue them. We need to let them know that without Christ that it's impossible for their life to give any glory to God. And that they need Christ. And all of us are dirty. All of us are plagued with sin. And the only way that you can ever be clean, clean enough, and you can't take enough showers, and you can't take enough baths on your own, the only cleansing that makes you perfectly righteous and holy to stand in God's presence when you die is if you're completely cleansed by the blood of Christ. By asking him, will you forgive me, Father, for my sin? And I'm going to trust in you. I'm going to follow you. I'm done living my life on my own terms and my own way. And I want to make my life count. And I want to give you glory. They must understand that God is perfectly holy and that every human being falls short of that holy perfection to stand in his presence. And that's why the Lord Jesus Christ came to live the perfect life that we could never live. And then he paid the perfect price on the cross and he gave his life on the cross and he absorbed the eternal wrath of God and the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. And in exchange, it costs us something. The scripture teaches us that it costs us something. It costs us our life. It costs us a commitment to him. It costs us getting off the throne of our own life and sitting on the side why he takes control of our life and we live according to his terms. Plead with them to trust completely in Christ. Plead with them and let them know that there is no unforgivable sin except to reject Christ. That no matter what you've done in your past, it can be forgiven and it was nailed to the cross. Plead with them. Nothing in this life is more important. Encourage them to ask questions, to think more deeply about what God has done for them. And we're going to even take some time, second hour today. Many of you will be spending uh, Thanksgiving with unsaved family and friends. And we really want to be praying for the gospel opportunities that the Lord might give you. And so if you want to stay with us, we'd love to have you stay for that. God gives shepherds in the church four commands on how to use the word so that you will be accountable to God's instruction, encouragement, and warnings in your life. Shepherds must instruct you. They must exhort you. They must make it their habit and continually reprove you. And command number four, shepherds must hold you accountable. Our verse finishes with one final command. And look at the end of verse 15. These things speak and exhort and reprove with all authority. Let no one disregard you is how it ends and so after paul finishes with three commands in this verse there's 14 commands in this entire book and we have four of them today just in this single verse and after paul provides three of them paul ends with a final command that serves as a a prohibition let no one disregard you and this verb is only used here in the new testament but it can it's a compound word made up of two words around and think let no one think around you can also be translated, let no one step around you. Let no one get around you. Let no one escape. And the second person singular pronoun, you, lays the responsibility in this verse squarely upon Titus's own shoulders. So this verse serves as a message to all shepherds in the church age. We have a biblical mandate to hold those in our flocks accountable to the instruction, exhortations, and reproofs that God word, his word calls us to. 
And our time has disappeared like it always does. And let's just briefly consider accountability and application. How can it encourage you that God in his faithfulness provides shepherds who will serve as a safety net of protection for you? Such a measure of grace that pastors and shepherds and care group leaders and ministry leaders are in place if we should ever try to think around or dismiss God's instruction or disregard exhortations or reproofs that they're trying to give us in our lives. And the grace of God in this series has taught us so much. And what a fitting end to consider that God provides multiple layers of accountability for us in our lives. He does so because he loves us and he's preserving us for the day of redemption. It's powerful. Well, application means that you would be mindful of the shepherd's responsibilities and that there would be a willing and submissive spirit in in responsiveness. And I want to share a verse. Uh, This will be what we close with. If you'll turn there, I want to, and this would be a good one just to reflect on this week. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, obey your leaders. Obey your leaders, Hebrews 13, 17, and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. that the elders of Cornerstone, that I'm going to stand before God and I'm going to give an account for your soul and how I shepherded your soul. And you'll notice that we, it's nice to have just about an elder in every care group. We need that coverage. We need to know how to shepherd you Because we're going to give an account. But then it says this, let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. And I share this when we sit down in counseling sessions. I share, you know what? Let's just try to give, let's let's try to help each other give the best account. I want to help give you the best account that you possibly can give to the Lord. And I'm asking as a leader and as a shepherd who is relying solely on God and his wisdom that I need your help. Help me so that I can stand before the Lord and give an account. And that I don't have to do it with grief. I don't have to do, do, do it with fear. But I, I can do it because I see this mutual reciprocation that's going on within the church. That will bless us. It will bless us. What a privilege. What a privilege. And I turn the page and there's no more notes there. So that must mean something, right? And our time is up. I realize that this, this message has some weight, weightiness to it, but it's good. It's good for us to, to feel the weight of it. And I trust that it will bless you as you think about the Lord and all the ways that his grace continues just to show up in maybe dynamics that we haven't really thought about or seen or considered before. Huge blessing. Well, we're going to take a break after we uh, have our response song and then want to invite you to stay for second hour if you're able to because we do want to spend some time on Top Sunday and praying for the gospel opportunities and another uh, 
a couple other pressing matters just even within our church family that the elders will share more about second hour. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we uh, acknowledge that we are needy in every single way and that your word has allowed us to see yet another measure of your grace as you provide and have historically provided shepherds to love and care for us as instruments in your hands that help guide and direct our ministry steps that help us to see that oh father I can't even imagine I think about all the godly leaders that have allowed me to be where I'm at today my life, the the wreck, the mess, the foolishness that my life would, would be had it not been for their kindness to teach and to exhort and even at times to, to warn me and tell me the things that I needed to hear. What a measure of your grace and goodness. And I pray that as a church family that we won't take it for granted. We won't dismiss it. We won't take it lightly that we'll see the messengers that you put in our path. Whether that's me as a pastor, the elders, our care group leaders, ministry leaders. Father, we thank you again for providing so many layers of protection for us. We pray that you would allow our hearts to be receptive to our responsiveness and the principles that you would have us draw away from this powerful verse in Titus 2.15. We ask that you'll hear the prayers of your people second hour as we lift up these requests to you and that we could share all of our burdens with you and that you would carry us. And this is a fitting way for us to enter into the week of Thanksgiving because we're so thankful. We're so thankful in every single way. And finally, Father, I pray today that if there's someone here that doesn't know you, that hasn't been walking with you, that you wouldn't allow this message, you wouldn't allow your word to leave them, that it would just stay ringing in their ears because you want to help them to see that they need you in every way. I pray that you would work powerfully. I pray that you would draw people to yourself and that you would allow us all to live lives with the testimony glory and for your name's sake for your name and for your fame it's for this reason we pray in christ's name amen